Again, I just want to welcome everybody to the Brooklyn Church. So great seeing everybody. It really is. I'm glad we have a sunny day. I see some visitors. It's so nice to see you as well. If you don't mind, I'd like to have just a quick prayer before I begin. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being in your house on your holy Sabbath, Lord. I pray that if there be any sins, there be anything, Lord, that would keep your presence from being here, Lord, I ask that you would forgive us, cleanse us of those sins, and give us a repentant heart. I ask that you be with me. May everything that's being presented here, Lord, is not from me, but it's from your word. It's from the spirit of prophecy. It's your message, Lord. And uh, we ask all these things in the precious name and the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, my title of my sermon here, the thing is giving me a hard time today. The title of my sermon is actually called The Wall. That's kind of a weird ser- title sermon, huh? The Wall. What does that mean? Well, actually, if you turn in your Bible to the book of Matthew, and you go to the very first chapter, the very first chapter in Matthew, let me know when you're there. Are you there? There's a page right before Matthew, and it's called the New Testament. The New Testament. And it's very interesting that this page actually acts like a wall in the Bible. It really does. Because we all know when you look at your Bible, it's almost as if we have two books. You have the New Testament and you have the Old Testament. And and when most people think of the Bible, they always think of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And it's amazing to me that um, in the world that there are even churches that even have a Bible that only has the New Testament in it. It's almost as if everything in the book of Genesis and the book of Malachi, the first and last book of the Bible, is not even important. And they even call themselves New Testament churches. So what I like to do today, there's a lot I want to talk about between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but I hope today to change your mind in regard to this page. Because we know that the book of Matthew was inspired by God, We know everything in the back of the Bible is inspired by God. But was that page that was placed there called the New Testament, which acts like a wall that separates the Bible, was that an inspired page? No, it wasn't. It was actually placed there by man. So hopefully today that uh, I can change your view a little bit on that page is my hope. And I'm going to have a problem, so let me do this. Okay, let's see if this works here, there we go, alright, and there's a lot of confusion too in regards to the Old Testament, a lot of people think of the Old Testament as if it's something bad, as if something was wrong, everybody's heard that it was based on bad promises, and that there was like there was something wrong with the Old Testament, and that there was a need for another, and we know that many Christians actually use that today. So again, what I like to do is clear up some of these misconceptions about the New and Old Covenant. It's very interesting that when you look in the Bible and you look at Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31, Jeremiah 31 and 31, God has always had planned that someday that he would have a new covenant. And the Bible says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and with the house of Judah. So as you can see, it was always God's plan that someday he would have another one. It wasn't that 
there was going to be there was something wrong with this one, and because it was wrong, there needed to be another one. That's not the case. And when, so before we actually get in there and clear up some of these cobwebs, these misconceptions between the two, let's just cover some basic things about the New Testament and Old Testament. Because those aren't really words that we use today. We don't use the words covenant. We don't use the word testament. So if we take those meanings of those words and we change it into a modern term that we all understand, it basically is a contract. The Old Covenant or Old Testament was a contract that God made between himself and the children of Israel. When you turn in your Bible, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 2, or you can just listen. I'm just going to quote it. This is what Deuteronomy 5, 2 says. The Lord our God made a covenant with Israel in Horeb. Now, Horeb is the same as Mount Sinai. That was the name of Mount Sinai back then. And just like any contract that you would make today, there's an agreement, obviously, between two people. All of us have made loans, possibly with a bank, where we got a new, we bought a new car or a used car, and there's an agreement. We go to the bank, we want a car, but we don't have the money. The bank has the money, so we go to the bank, we apply for a loan, we make an agreement, there's this contract made, and in the end, the bank obviously makes, makes money, because they're gonna only, they're gonna, make us pay back more than a car's worth. And in the end, we get the car. So with any contract, there's an agreement between two people. And then the, before any contract can be actually put in force, I mean, anybody can put things on paper, but it's not made in force at all, right? It's actually not made in force until what? Until we both sign it. When you sign it, it becomes ratified. And that's what ratification means. When you, actually, when you go back and you, you look at, actually, what was this agreement between God and Israel? In Exodus chapter 19, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read this. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. For there they were, had departed from Rephidim, and were come into the desert of Sinai, and they had pitched in the wilderness... And there Israel camped before the mountain. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto Moses from out of the mountain. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now listen, here's where the contract starts to begin. God says, listen, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed... And keep my covenant, this contract, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou, Moses, shall speak unto the children of Israel. So there's no doubt what was involved in this contract between God and Israel. God says, listen. If you will keep my contract, you will obey my words indeed, then you, this is what you're going to get, you will become a kingdom of priests. You're going to become a peculiar, special people upon all the people of the earth, for all the earth is mine, but I'm going to make you a special people if you do this. And then in Exodus chapter 34 and verse 28, and we are told that Moses was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai, And he did neither eat bread or drink water. 
And he wrote the tables, the words of the covenant or the contract, the Ten Commandments. So there's no question what the words that the God wanted Israel to keep, right? We knew what it was, the Ten Commandments. That was part of the covenant. Now let me ask you a question. Was the Ten Commandments the only part in the Old Covenant? Was it the only thing that they had to do? And the answer to that question is no. It's not. We're told in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 16, 18 verse 16, Moses said this, I do make the children of Israel know the statutes and the laws. So there were more statutes, there were more laws on top of the Ten Commandments. And we're told this, in Exodus chapter 24, verses 3, 4, and 7, And Moses came and told all the people the words of the Lord. So here Moses is the go-between God and Israel. And he's laying before them this contract, this agreement, if they would agree. You'll get this. You'll be the peculiar people if you agree to obey the Lord. And then we're told that Moses wrote all the words of the Lord in a book. And he took the book of the covenant, this contract, and he read it in the audience of the people. And Deuteronomy 31 verse 24 said this, And it came to pass when Moses had made an end of the writing of the words of the law in the book, until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites which bear the Ark of the Covenant. Now what, what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments, right? That's part of this contract. And Moses commanded the Levites which bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take this book which he wrote, of the law and put it on the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord thy God that it may be there as a witness for you. So there's no doubt that there were other laws and statutes outside of the Ten Commandments and the Moses wrote all the words of Moses? No. He wrote all the words of the Lord. So the Lord gave him these laws and statutes and he placed that book alongside the ark of the covenant. The Ten Commandments. Now if we're ever going to understand completely what was contained in the old covenant, this old contract, we would have to know what Moses write, wrote, right? We need to know what laws and statutes he wrote in order to, to fully understand what was in this contract between God and Israel. We know it was the Ten Commandments. But what were these other laws and statutes? So the question I have for you today is, where is the book of Moses that he wrote in a book now? And if you don't know, I got good news. I do know. I got good news. And the good news is, you know too. Because the book of Moses, the book of the law that he wrote, happens to be the first five books of your Bible. Those are the book of Moses. That's the book of the law. It's found in the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is known as the book of the law. That is the book of Moses in which Moses wrote. It is the book in which he read to all the children of Israel. Now, in order again for us to fully understand what these other laws and statutes were, I would have to read uh, the first five books of the Bible. So we'll start in Genesis chapter 1. No, I can't do that. We can't read five chapters of the Bible as much as I would like to do that. I'm sure you would really be excited about that too. But what I did is I condensed it. I cut it, condensed it for you today so we can understand what these other laws were. 
If you were to read in Leviticus chapters 18 and 19, and Exodus chapter 21, and in Deuteronomy chapter 15, you will find that in the book of Moses, the book of the law, there was something that was called civil laws. Civil laws. What do you do if somebody steals something from you? What do you do if somebody run, tramples your goat and you lose your goat? You know, there's different things. You understand civil laws like we have today. If you read in Leviticus chapter 1 and through chapter 7 and chapter 23, you will find in the Bible that there were also ceremonial laws. The sanctuary service, the feast days, the sacrificial system. And there were the ceremonial laws. And in Leviticus chapter 1 and uh, 11 verse 1 and chapter 15 verse 33, you will find health laws. What we can eat, what we can't eat. Actually, there was also what you can wear, what you shouldn't wear, what threads, kind of uh, threads that should be mixed together, what not. There were sanitation laws. So it's very important that we understand that in the old covenant, this old contract, between God and Israel, there were five things. There was the moral law, the Ten Commandments. There were civil laws. There were the health laws. And there was the ceremonial laws. And of course, but we need to keep in mind that God separated the two. They were all God's words. But yet, what was in the covenant was special. It was set apart. And that is because that represented the character of God. That was placed in the Ark of the Covenant, the golden box. But the, these other laws were placed outside. But they all encompass the Old Covenant. And then we are told that God ratifies. You know, he ratifies this. Well, first I should say this. Obviously, did the children of Israel agree to do this? We're told in Exodus chapter 24 and verse 7. And he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and he read it in the audience of the people. And they, the children of Israel, said... All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. So Israel agreed with God that, yes, we will do that, right? So how did they ratify it, the people? Well, for them, it was a verbal contract. It's not like they could shake their hand with God. It wasn't that way. And some contracts are based on your word only. I remember in the old, little bit in the older days, people made agreements solely on their word. You remember those days? You almost have to be an older person to remember those days. You know, I'll trade you this for this on Wednesday. Okay, I give you my word, and on Wednesday that happened. But if it didn't happen, your word was mud. Nobody would ever make a deal with you after that. That word spread, and you could forget it. You'll never make a deal. Your word was no good after that. And unfortunately today, you can't really trust people based on your word. But back then, the children of Israel ratified their end of the agreement with God verbally by giving their promise. But how did God ratify the end of it? Did he ratify his part of the contract with his word? Well, his word would have been enough, I'll tell you. But God did something very special. He ratified it by blood. Amen. By blood. Amen. Why did God ratify it with blood? We're told that in Exodus 24 and verse 8, And Moses took the blood from the animal sacrifices which God commanded in Exodus 24, 5, and 6. And he, Moses, sprinkled it upon the people. And he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, or the blood of the contract, which the Lord had made with you concerning all these words that I read to you. All the laws. Okay? So again, a question. Why does the God ratify things with blood? 
And in the book of Hebrews, we actually find our answer. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 17 through 22. And you're all familiar with this. I know you're familiar with these words. For where a testament or a contract is, there must also necessity be the death of the testator. It means the death of the person that's making the contract with them. For a testament or a contract is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is no strength at all while the testator or the one who makes the contract is alive. And you had to think about that. Why would that be true? Why would that be true? When you think of the old covenant, it's, it's, it's like God was saying, listen, this is like a living will. You know what a living will is, right? As long as I'm alive, I can make all the changes to the will that I want. But once I die, that's it. It's finished. It's ratified. It's cemented. It can't be changed. It can't be altered. And that's what the blood represented. And we're also told in Hebrews 9, verses 18, something else about the blood, what it represented. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water, and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament, which God had enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. And then he says, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, without the shedding of blood is no remission. So the blood has a lot to do with sin. And we know that sin is transgression of the law, and transgression of the law means death. Somebody would have to die for us in order for our sins to be forgiven. So there's two meanings for the blood. But ratification means it's done, it's set, it's set in stone. And the other part of it is that it removes sin. Now this is very interesting when you think about that. And, and you think about Jesus' death on the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, did he not shed his blood? Was not the covenant already established at that point? Think about this for a moment, because there are Christians to this, to this day will say that after Christ rose from the dead on Sunday, that the Lord changed the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. It cannot be possible, because once Jesus shed his blood, it was finished. Whatever it was at that time was the way the law is. It can't be changed. It can't be altered. Amen? Amen. So exactly what then was wrong with the old covenant? Was it really faulty? Was there really something wrong? Well, we're told in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, For if the first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, the children of Israel. So was there fault with God? No, the fault was with Israel. So what is exactly, what is with this old covenant? What was with the old? When you look at it and you really examine the old covenant, you learn one thing about the old covenant. It was nothing more than a shadow of the true covenant in which God was going to, had all along planned that was going to happen. Amen? The sanctuary in the Old Testament was nothing more than a shadow of the heavenly sanctuary. All the sacrificials of the lambs were nothing but shadows of the true Lamb of God who was to come. Amen? So the covenant, the old covenant was always based that someday there would be the true covenant. It was just a, if you will, a reflection of the true. And when type meant any type, then God's covenant was fulfilled. 
Now it's very interesting. So we know there was nothing wrong with God. It was always God's plan that someday he would have a new covenant. We know that the old covenant has and always was nothing more than a shadow of the true covenant that someday that God was going to put in place. It was nothing more than a shadow of the true. So we know that Israel broke the covenant. The question is, how did Israel break their agreement with God? Now, a lot of people will say, well, they broke the Ten Commandments. Well, it is true that they broke the Ten Commandments. But there's something that most of us don't think about when you think about how Israel broke their covenant, their agreement with God. And you can actually find this. I find this most fascinating in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 and 6. Hebrews 10, verses 5 and 6. And I quote, this is what, and this is Jesus speaking through his holy word. Listen, sacrifice and offerings thou wouldest not, but a body thou hast prepared me. And burnt offerings and sacrifice for his sin, thou hadst no pleasure. Now, what part of the old covenant contained sacrifices for sin? Was it the health laws? Was it the moral law? Was it the civil laws? Was it the ceremonial law? It was the ceremonial law. They didn't like sacrificing animals. They found no pleasure in it. And you have to ask yourself, well, if you were to put yourself in their shoes, you would probably feel a lot just like them. Because every time you sinned, you would have had to take a lamb or a goat, and you would have had to slice its throat and watch it bleed and watch it die. Would you have had pleasure in that? Think about it. I wouldn't have had pleasure in that either. So you must ask yourself, well, you know, why does God do this? Does God have a delight in the blood of animal sacrifices? And you will find that in the Bible, you'll learn very clearly that God has no delight. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 11, God says, I delight not in the blood of bullocks or a lamb or he goats. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 22, and Samuel said, Have the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to hearken unto the Lord than the fat of rams. So the purpose of the sacrificial system was to try to get the people to realize that when you sin, somebody somewhere was going to have to die for your sins by shedding their blood. It was a hoping that so sick of them that they see the, the horrendousness and the cost of their sin that they would turn from sin. But instead, what do most people do? They keep sinning and they have to keep sacrificing. And it became very hard for them and they didn't want to do it. And it's another thing that they, they made a mistake in the Old Covenant. They made this, they made this agreement with God thinking that they could keep God's law, all of His laws, the moral law, all of it, without their help because they said all that the Lord has said and all the laws they said that we can do. Let me ask you something. Can we keep God's laws without his help? No. You can't do it. In fact, Jesus, who is the God of the Old Testament, the one who said, Behold, a body thou hast prepared me, told us this. Without me, you can do nothing. So what Israel was doing was take was they had this self-righteousness. And that was another part of the covenant where they how they broke it. I'd like to read something in Patriarch and Prophets, page 371. The people did not realize the sinfulness of their own hearts. He's talking about the Old Covenant. 
And without Christ, it was impossible for them to keep God's law. They readily entered into the covenant or the contract with God, feeling that they were able to establish their own righteousness. Your own righteousness stinks in the eyes of God. And they declared all that the Lord Hill said, we will do. So there's no mistake on how they broke the covenant. Now when you think about the new covenant now, since we talked about the old covenant, let's go to the new covenant. Again, the new covenant was just a, the new covenant was the, was the anti-type, which means it's not the type, and the old covenant was just the type, was the type. It was the shadow. I'd rather say shadow and the true because it makes much more sense. This anti and all this stuff can get everybody all flustered and goofed up. So it was a shadow of the true. So obviously that um, the new covenant was built on, on much better promises. It had a much better sanctuary in heavenly. It had a much better high priest. But there was something that Israel, that if they would have did what God said, that they really would have been a peculiar people, a really special people upon all the earth. And they were supposed to teach God's ways and his laws to the rest of the earth. That was God's plan. But they didn't do it. But if they would have obeyed God back then, and they would have relied on God, they would have been able to keep this. Again, I want to read something in the Bible and in Patriarch and Prophets chapter 22. The terms of the old covenant or the old contract were obey and live. If a man do, he shall even live in them, Ezekiel 20 and verse 11. But cursed be he that conformeth not in all the words of the law to do them. Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 26. The new covenant was established upon better promise. The promise of forgiveness and grace of God to renew the heart and to bring it into harmony with God. Without, with God's law. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their inward parts and write them in their hearts. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah 31, verse 33 and 34. So you can see the new covenant was better all the way. <clears throat> so the next question I have then, so that means that when Jesus died on the cross, I want you to think about this. Remember, the old covenant, this old contract contained the moral law, the civil laws, the health laws, and the ceremonial laws. When Jesus died on the cross, did, the, did that did that old covenant go away and die? And the answer to that is, well, some of it did, but some of it didn't. When Jesus died on the cross, what part of the old law was fulfilled? The ceremonial laws, right? When Jesus died on the cross, we don't need to sacrifice lambs anymore. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, we don't need to keep the feast days anymore. So it was clearly that when the, when Jesus died on the cross, the ceremonial law was done away with. But how about the moral law? Was it done away with? Think about it. Was the health laws done away with? No. Was the ceremonial laws done away with? I mean, yes. Was the civil laws done away with? No, they weren't. Now, we are commanded, you know, I want you to go out and you find somebody adultery, start stoning them in your backyard, okay? Because we're also told in the Bible that we need to live under the rules of where we live, the laws of the land. But the point is, the only part of the old covenant 
that was done away was, was the ceremonial law. Therefore, guess what? This is the new covenant. The whole Bible is the new covenant except for a few pages in Leviticus. Do you see that? So what about that page before Matthew? It's incorrect. It's incorrect. This is the new covenant. It's the old covenant and it's the new covenant. But there were parts of the old covenant that was done away with when Jesus died on the cross. And he ratified it with his own blood. Amen? Now here's the thing. There is a statement in Colossians that tells us what was done away with. And I want us to think for a moment what Israel didn't like about the old covenant. Remember? They didn't like doing sacrifices for sin. They found no pleasure in it. Now listen to this. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 and verse 14. And you are complete in him, that meaning Jesus Christ, which is the head of all principalities and power, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, now listen, which was against us, which was contrary to us. And he took it out, nailing it to the cross. There was only one thing in the old covenant that was contrary to Israel. And that was the sacrificial system. Can you see that? It makes it so simple. It's so easy to understand. And when you think about this, and you think about us. Well, first I want to say... When Israel broke the Old Covenant, does that mean God forever forgot about them? That's it. You're done. It's true Israel is not the chosen people on the earth no more because they did break the covenant. And let me show you that. I'm going to find that text here real quick. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 8 and verse 9 in regard to the covenant, Because they continued not in my covenant, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. But there's no question, my friend, that the Lord didn't, they, they just kept them from becoming that peculiar people, the kingdom of priests, that special people upon the earth. But God didn't exclude them to be part of the new covenant. We're told in Romans chapter 11 and verse 1, now Paul says this, I say then, hath God cast away his people, meaning Israel, for, for God forbid, for I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So God has not cast away at all. And so all of us are part of the new covenant. When we partake of baptism, we agree with God that we will agree with him in the in this covenant with God. When we partake of the communion service and we take the embolism of the grape juice which symbolizes blood, you are entering into a covenant, a contract, a testament with God. Amen? Amen? So we're no different than Israel. I want to read something to you. I'm almost done. This is found in Councils of Health, page 567. Councils of Health, 567. The Lord had made a special covenant with ancient Israel. Now, therefore, if you obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now listen, he addresses his commandment-keeping people in these last days, that's you and me, in the same way. But and we're told, and, and to prove this to you, <coughs> in First Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, we're told, but, and God is talking to you right now, you and me. 
But you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. And listen to this statement. This really sums it up. This is found in Child Guidance, page 495. For those who have seen the truth and felt its importance and had an experience in the things of God, have we had an experience in the things of God? Have we not experienced the special truths really among above all people upon the earth? Anybody who understands what we know to be true, we know that to be true. Amen? Amen. It's important to have an experience in the things of God and to teach sound doctrine to their children. They should make them acquainted with the great pillars of our faith, the reasons why we are Seventh-day Adventists, why we are called, as we are, as were the children of Israel, to be a peculiar people, a holy nation, separate and distinct from all people upon the face of the earth. These things should be explained to the children in simple language, easy to be understood as they grow in years. The lessons imparted should be suited to their increasing capacity until the foundation of truth has been laid uh, broad and deep. Amen? Amen? That's you and me. That's us. We have entered into a covenant with God. And this Bible contains all of that covenant except for the ceremonial laws. So in your mind, that page is wrong. The Bible is not this. It's this. Mine is maybe a few pages in the ceremonial law. Right? Amen? Amen. So I'm going to close with these words. This is found in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 20. Now the God of peace they have brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Will there be another covenant? No, there won't. When Jesus died on the cross, it's finished. It's unalterable. It's unchangeable. Unto the everlasting covenant... Make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I'd like to just have a prayer with you, if you don't mind. I'd just like to have a prayer together. Dear Lord, we thank you for dying on the cross and shedding your blood. There is no doubt that when you shed your blood on the cross, your covenant was sealed. We know now your whole Bible is your covenant, minus the ceremonial law. Although the sanctuary service is still going in heaven. You are the high priest. uh, You are the Lamb of God. And we enter into covenant to you and be obedient. But we're not going to be obedient because we can do it ourselves. We need you to help us. But you also need us to cooperate with you so you can write your law in our hearts and minds. And Lord, it's up to every individual here to make a personal covenant with you and whether or not you will be you will enter into covenant with God. That you are willing to be a peculiar treasure, a holy people among all the people of the earth. We are truly a blessed people. You have truly given us the truths of sound doctrines and the pillars in the earth. We are your people because we obey your laws. We are your people because we obey your covenant. We keep your Sabbath, which is a sign between us and you that we are your people. Lord, may you help us to be ever faithful to you. 
May you continue to write your blessed, holy character, your moral law upon our hearts and minds. And we just love you. We cherish you. Let us never be so blind in this world that we turn our eyes off you. You're the only thing worth having. You're the only thing worth being with when all when life is over. And we ask you this in the name of Jesus Christ, through the blood of the covenant. We love you. We adore you. Thank you so much, Jesus. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.